One. Singular immortal, that's how many there can be. One. Beheading after another, it's a gruesome sight to see. That's all I got. I'm glad you're doing that, not me. If I if I was the one singing, our audience truly would be, in the end, there is only one. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome yet again to the Pemmy and James Kinda Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And as you've probably gathered, this week's subject is Highlander. Yes, so we're going to just get ahead of ourselves. How different is that from normal? It doesn't have a pun reason for saying that. Fair. Highlander, by the standards of 80s fantasy action movies, is actually very high concept. The original movie... Released in 1986, bobbed and weaved between two tales, one set in the modern era and one in the 16th century, all centered around a small group of immortal warriors battling each other while the looming promise of the gathering to fight for the prize, that is, the power of all immortals through time, because in the end, there can only be one, which is their big prophecy. When all was said and done, protagonist Connor McLeod beats the big bad, the Kurgan, and becomes the one, and mortal to boot. Is that about right? Yeah, it's pretty much accurate. And then after that, they decided, and then it was popular enough that they decided, hey, we need to make a sequel, and uh, they really shouldn't have. (laughs) It took a while for that to happen, though. You see, I suppose we're stretching the definition of blockbuster for our summer blockbuster month here, because Highlander was anything but that upon release netting a global box office of only around $13 million. But then, that puts it in the same category as films like Labyrinth and Clue, which did dismally in theaters, but found their audiences on cable television and via home video rentals, becoming massive favorites that way. Man, it, it, every time I hear that Labyrinth was bombed, it's just mind-blowing to me because I remember watching that a million times when I was a kid. It was through that level of success, uh, in the secondary market rather than in the box office, that Highlander wound up breaking its There Can Only Be One phrase with the 1991 sequel, Highlander 2, The Quickening, then a 1994 sequel, Highlander the Sorcerer, or Highlander the Final Dimension, based on your region, which was made to undo the continuity of the second movie. (laughs) We're going to be seeing a lot of that. Oh, that second movie. (laughs) Neither of these were well-received films. And further complicating matters was a TV series introduced in 1992, which does its own thing entirely, with Connor McLeod having not won The Gathering. We're talking about the live-action series here? A live-action series, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they also starred a different McLeod named Duncan McLeod. I actually used to watch that show. I think I watched that more than I watched the original movie as a kid. Amidst all this, apparently something about that first movie was inspiring so many sources to make so many sequels to it because there would be one more. 
and it is the truest misfit of the bunch. Highlander, the animated series. This was a production of Guamont Multimedia and produced by Serge Rosenwig. This will be Serge's most notable work as far as us here in the States would be concerned, the overwhelming majority of his output having been made with the European market in mind. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've seen anything from him. I may have seen a couple of other products from Gamont Studios, but yeah. <laughs> now in this one, we once again use the original Highlander movie from 1986 as the launching point, but go much further into the future. Boy, howdy do we. Seven centuries have passed. Yeah. An apocalyptic event makes Connor and what other immortals are around at the time swear an oath to give up the pursuit of the prize to work together and rebuild humanity. Much of what transpires next is covered in the first episode, which we're reviewing. So we won't go too much further than that right now, lest we find ourselves repeating ourselves. Ourselves. Though there is something that gets mentioned later in another episode, but I'll probably mention that when we get there. Absolutely. I will say, though, that Connor did make an appearance in this series. <laughs> but up first is the last. Namely, the last of the McClouds. Boy, it's a good thing I watched this before I started, because I always thought it was pronounced McLeod. Nah, it's McLeod. My uh, Scottish heritage is crying. <laughs> so is mine. Though, in my defense, I thought McLeod for the longest time was spelled M-C-C-L-O-U-D, but that was like when I was in high school. <laughs> so, Our show opens with a panning shot up to Magonda, the emerald-colored fortress of our villain, Cortan. Who loves to wear the color scheme of green and black, which is a Interesting combo. I'll give him that. He was ahead of Shigo's time. I also like how they used like the green as uh, highlights on the black. I think actually that looks kind of stylish. Cortan is demanding of his servants why his searchlights have gone dim. And when he's told he hasn't enough slaves to maintain them, he demands more be found in the highlands. This also shows a couple of his uh, goons that you see frequently in the series. Like I, I don't remember exactly their names, but like the scientist... This one lady and his yeah. questionably, <laughs> his questionable uh, side goon, I guess you'd say. More about him in a second, but we should mention that Corten is voiced by Lawrence Bain, a character actor who animation fans would recognize as Cable in X-Men the Animated Series. I actually didn't know that. Nice. Now, said Jester is a shirtless man in a Harlequin mask who mockingly sticks his tongue out at these bureaucrats. But they pay it no heed and just pledge their continued loyalty to Cortan. This jester is Malone, who is voiced by Lorne Kennedy. But for the precise moment, he's silent here. I just, I, I, I don't want to make... It's just, Malone's design looks like something that you'd see in a not very child-friendly club. I'm just going to say that. I was thinking a Mardi Gras parade. That, that too. That's much better than what I'm thinking. Let's go with that. <laughs> but again, we repeat ourselves. I don't think Mardi Gras is necessarily very child-friendly. Fair also. <laughs> yeah. So we get some establishing shots of the massive, futuristic interior of Maganda as a pair of tanks exit out the front door. And the lead tank is piloted by Major Arik, 
who informs his subordinate of the destination. Arik is performed by Don Dickinson, whose other re- reoccurring animated role is No, N-O-E, that is, on the adaptation of Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Oh, wow. I do like how Iraq is so, like, kind of... He feels so kind of done, though. It's because it's just like, Supreme Power to Cortan. He's just like, yeah, yeah, Supreme Power to Cortan. <laughs> Eric's subordinate protests that the Highlands are the territory of the Dundies, fierce warriors, but Eric will have none of the protestations. Nope. Gotta do what the big guy tells you to. Transitioning over to what I presume to be the Highlands, which are fairly idyllic compared to the wasteland of Cortan's fortresses region, we find Quentin and Clyde, adopted brother and sister, along with Quentin's pet Gaul, which is a Gran, a six-limbed hybrid of an ape and a canine. Oh, you know, radiation for seven centuries. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. I, I do want to say, uh, before we get too much further, that those establishing shots of Maganda looks really, look really nice. Indeed they do. There's a bit of a Thundercats effect going on here, where there's really great backgrounds. Unfortunately, the the character art's not the greatest. <laughs> Clyde, the sister, dares Quentin to get wood from a crabapple tree hanging off a cliff to make her a watermill with. Now, Quentin's voice actor is Miklos Perlis, also known for his role in the Emmy Award-winning series Avonlea, and he's still doing some voice acting today, but he's mostly a behind-the-scenes worker writing for and developing other series. That's kind of cool. Clyde's VA is Katie Zegers in her only major reoccurring role in a short career as a child actress. She does pretty good, all things considered. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find good kid voice actors, to be honest. It is. Sadly, Gall's voice actor goes uncredited. Might be one of the other cast members. So as the little toy water mill is built and eventually falls apart... Clyde asks if Quentin is scared of anything, even Cortan's hunters, as shots of said hunters approaching the Highlands are interspersed in between the siblings' scene. That's going to be a trademark of this show, I noticed. Yeah, it does that a bit. We jump back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Real quick. It's a decent enough way to get a lot out with the, a, lot, a lot of what's going on out without, you know, too long of scenes without the main characters, I guess. So despite his bravado, Quentin admits to having nightmares, describing it of him being seven years old and being approached by an unknown rider demanding to know his name and claiming he'll be back if not for him, then for another. More about that guy later. (laughs) Yeah. For whatever reason, Quentin is scared of the day the man comes back for him. Just then... Gall growls, signaling to the kids that the hunters have arrived in their little hamlet. Quentin goes to save his mom, but his mom decides at all times now is a good time to drop the bomb that his last name is actually not Dundee, but McLeod. Yeah, this causes some confusion. An arc spots the two and decides to dispatch Quentin, whilst signaling his cohort to capture Quentin's mom. Quentin... Does a quite impressive job of grabbing said cohort's like sword, and for someone who's seemingly never fought with a sword at the time, does a pretty good job at fighting Eric. Yeah. Also, he calls Eric's cohort a murderer. We didn't even see him perform any violence on the mom. 
I'm wondering if that was meant to be some reference to something happening off screen that, you know, can't show because of censors. Right. Or the fact that they're just, it could also just be the fact that they're attacking their village, period, too. Possibly. It's definitely not one of the wait just a minute moments. It's it it just feels slightly awkward. Yeah. So Quentin stumbles on a rock, landing flat in his back, and Eric actually slays the young man. But right as the killing blow is landed, we switch right back to Cortan, feeling tremendous pain all the way back at his fortress. While the mysterious rider from the dream appears in the present and remarks he's waited 700 years for this moment. That's quite a long time, I might say. Yeah. Of course, when you're 3,000 years old, what's another 100 years? You know, I imagine that is the case, because if there's anything I can say about real life, it's amazing how when you were a kid, it felt like time was slow. But when you're an adult, it feels like a year can go past really fast. Absolutely. As the men of the Dundee are taken by the hunters, Quentin's mom says his destiny has arrived as she collapses next to him. And despite being slayed, Quentin has no stab mark whatsoever, but again, that's that's censorship for you. Which, considering what we're going to be seeing in future episodes, is a bit surprising. As with any immortal in the Highlander series, you, you don't find out you're an immortal until you've been killed. <laughs> Or what? Or morally wounded, I guess is a word, because then you, out of nowhere, will be revived. And that's exactly what happens to Quentin. And once he does come back to life, his mother tells him he's the chosen Highlander, who's been awaited for seven centuries. The rider will return for him, and Quentin has a destiny to fulfill. But she also begs him to rescue the Dundees from Cortan and take care of Clyde before Mom passes on. And... Turns into a complete shadow. I didn't get that part. Yeah, I, I guess it's just a, they're just trying to symbolize that she's dead without, you know, actually showing that she's a dead body. Or, again, could be weird censorship. Must be a, an artistic license that flies over the head of a dumb American like me. I, I just, I, I thought it was weird, too, to be honest. I was just like, all right. I mean, I guess she's dead now. <laughs> Quentin shares a tear. And then goes meetups with Clyde, who's like, what happened to mom? And it's like, I'll tell you about it later. Hard cut. <laughs> yeah. These kids really seem to be taking the death of their mother figure in such stride. It's almost certainly because they have so much plot to get through, but it's still a little unnerving. It, it is. I, I, I can only hope that between that, that cut, a lot probably happened is what I'm hoping at least. Because, yeah, I, I'd imagine these kids would be really upset, but it's like, we, we don't have time for that. Plus, again, censorship can be weird about stuff like that. So right. it is a little like, geez, kids, your mom just died. <laughs> After this cut, they're approached by the rider, who again asks Quentin's name. And this time he gets Quentin McLeod. Which Quentin brandishes his uh, boomerang. When asked what he's going to do with it, Quentin says he's going to take on Cortan, and if he has to go through the rider, so be it. The rider says if he's here to fight, he's to fight like a Highlander, and gives Quentin a massive sword. It's a pretty cool-looking sword, all things considered. Yeah. Meanwhile, Cortan demands his armor from Malone, knowing what is coming for him. Uh, to, to quote another villain, gotta be prepared. 
Quentin and Clyde wonder why the former should follow the rider, especially since you're on the wrong end of the sword. You mean the sword he gave you, kid? You're not really following what's happening here, are you? He's a young, brash Scottish child. (laughs) The rider introduces himself as Don Vincente Marino Ramirez, who will be simply called Ramirez from here on out. He was actually in the first movie and played by Sean Connery. Yep. Here, he's performed by Benedict Campbell, who also performed the voice of King K. Rule in the uh, notorious Donkey Kong Country animated series. No kidding. I didn't no know kidding that. at all. Boy, that's a that's a freaking show. <laughs> he gives Quentin his first lesson by handling toppling the kid over with just his bare hands. I mean, well, when a kid's being rashed with a sword, you gotta show up somehow. <laughs> Simultaneously, Cortan's seen Gret getting a sword via Malone using his body as a security key to unlock it. Which, I gotta admit, is bo- both a cool gimmick, but also raises questions. What do you do if Malone dies? Because Malone's not a immortal. It reminds me of that one game show where, where contestants would have to contort themselves to fit inside a, hole, a body-shaped hole, and if they miss, they fall into, into a pool... I don't remember that game show. <laughs> I mean, what does Cortan do if Malone dies? Does he just, like, use Malone's dead body to open the door? <laughs> Fair question. Meanwhile, the lessons in swordsmanship between Quentin and Ramirez are on in earnest. And Quentin doesn't feel very fond of uh, Ramirez referring to him as a child. If you're 3,000 years old, even Yoda's a child. You know, Fair. <laughs> But it's because Quentin's a McLeod that he must confront Cortan, who at that moment is being praised by Malone, who pities the men who Cortan will be facing. Cortan lifts his servant up by the neck and says they're not men, but jetators, which is derived from the French word for thrown away. To his credit, Cortan's sword's kind of cool looking too, but... <laughs> Back at the training, Ramirez explains that the jetators are immortals, who have given up their blades to assist the remnants of men. 700 years ago, as we see in a flashback, the immortals swore an oath to give up the hunt for the prize. All except Cortan. But Cortan simultaneously remembers one of the Jedators prophesies that another immortal will be born, unbound by the oath, who will come for him. Oh, and we learn that all the other immortals, other than Cortan, are willing to give Quentin their knowledge and power in order to help him defeat Cortan, but do it in a form that does not require beheading. Yeah, we'll get to that a little later. But you do see it in the intro and in the end credits. I thought it was in this episode, but it wasn't. But there's another episode that, that flashes back to this scene, and it actually had uh, Connor McLeod actually fights Cortan at, on these grounds and uh, dies. <laughs> Which is... Uh, Wow, that's... I'm going to give credit where credit's due. You've got some guts if you're going to kill the character from the movie this is based on in your cartoon show. (laughs) Based on it. So the new immortal is naturally Quentin, who is bristling against Ramirez's orders to leave Clyde behind and insists on going to Maganda to free the Dundies. The kids are far too stubborn for Ramirez, who reluctantly leads them to Maganda. 
I, I do like this scene. It's like, for 700 years, for 700 years, Ramirez, you've managed to escape children. <laughs> when we see our protagonists next, they're in Maganda's slums. A wreckage that I imagine makes any real-life slum seem upscale by comparison. Again, some nice background art, though. Indeed. Here they seek Magnus, a Jetator architect whose plans Maganda were based on. And he's not happy. <laughs> so, Quentin and Ramirez feel the presence of another immortal, and it's thankfully Mangus, who is the Jetator who prophesied Quentin's coming in the flashbacks. And he scolds Ramirez for bringing Quentin here already. Which, you know, fair. <laughs> Granted, they're, they're not there to fight Cortan, but yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, they're there to rescue the Dundies, who, according to Magnus and his associate, are still in the sorting facility. And Mangus grouchily shows them the way through the sewers there. Which is through some weird chopping engine piece, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Of course, this immortal proximity sense means Cortan realizes Quentin is present, and he goes to have the kid's head. Quentin has to tell Clyde to stay with Magnus as he, Ramirez, and Magnus's at the moment unnamed assistant, later identified as Igor, I think, dart through a bladed grinder without losing their heads. Yep. It, it is definitely mentioned that even to them that would be fatal if they goof up on that. Yeah. Did we did we mention the only way to kill an immortal is to cut off its head? We did now. Oh. Yeah, there you go, guys. That That's from the whole Highlander series. You, The only way to kill an immortal is to cut off their head, and when you cut off their head, you gain their knowledge, power, what have you. It's one way to get ahead in life. <laughs> now, Clyde impulsively darts through and shouts to Magnus to take care of Gaul. Oh boy. Thank God she made it through. <laughs> also, I kind of like how Mangus is just like, little brat. <laughs> Finding the sorting station, the heroes are spotted by the hunters, but Quentin stops them from raising the alarm with his boomerang. Arik checks on the Dundies and tells his guard to watch them carefully, but the guard turns his back just in time for Ramirez to choke him out. Does it all freaking Metal Gear Solid style. <laughs> Two years, at least, before Metal Gear Solid itself. Yep. The Dundies are led out by Igor as more hunters arrive, and Clyde knocks out one of them with a big old steel beam. Kid's stronger than she looks! Yeah, no kidding. Also, that, that one she knocked out had a freaking flamethrower. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Just as they're about to bolt, Cortan arrives... There's taunting and boasting, and Ramirez is ready to sacrifice himself, but Magnus instead opts to intervene. Which means that Magnus has to sacrifice himself so that they can escape. Essentially. Quentin wants to stop the heroic sacrifice, but Ramirez insists they escape, as inevitably Magnus's knowledge goes to Cortan. Maganda is awash in light as the killing blow is struck. Off camera, of course, because, you know, censors, but you it's still well enough executed that you know what happens. Outside Maganda, Quentin regrets Magnus's death, but Ramirez assures him that Magnus's most important lesson is that if you believe in something, fight for it until the end. 
And the adventure begins. This does get into one thing that I do find kind of surprising and kind of neat about this show is this isn't the only episode where Cortan actually gets one of the janitor janitors. Um, there's episodes where the villain actually legitimate, uh, more or less wins. He's not going to kill Quentin, obviously, but he actually gets the knowledge instead of Quentin, which is kind of surprising for a kid's aimed show. A little bit. But other than that, um, it's a serviceable origin episode. It, it gets the job done. It probably could have done to be a two-parter, but... Yeah, I'll, I'll agree to that. I think it would have been better if it was a two-parter and they didn't need the, to rush so much stuff in it, but alas. So this is going to be our best opportunity to talk about this. Uh, the way you can get the Immortal's knowledge without killing him, there's a ceremony where they both clasp onto the Immortal's sword Mystic energy is passed between them, and the sword shatters, symbolizing the transfer is complete. And making the immortal that gave up his knowledge and power becomes mortal as a side effect. Indeed. There's a lot of really good world building in this cartoon, which is one of its better aspects. I think it's one of the reasons I I honestly like it. Uh, A lot of people I've met are not fans of this, but I personally like it. I personally find it enjoyable. I will reserve my own opinion for a little later on. We'll get more into it later. Yeah. After the break, we have a a departure episode, which occurred very early in the series. Stay tuned. After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, it's our 50th episode, and we picked a true television landmark to celebrate. The Flintstones ran for six seasons on NBC, a record that would hold for three decades, and won over audiences with its entertaining protagonists and charming Stone Age kitsch. There was more to this than a Honeymooners ripoff, and we'll tell you why in two weeks. So... A scant two episodes later, we come across The Last Weapon, an odd title at first blush for a cartoon centered around swordsmen, but there's a good reason for it. I I thought this would make for an interesting episode since it delves more into the post-apocalyptic aspect of the show more than I, I felt like other episodes did, and that's kind of the aspect I like most about this show. Right. So as we open, an ambush is about to be staged on a caravan of Dundees going through a valley with Gorons in tow. Gorons are another original animal creation, a combination of bovine and pachyderm used for heavy labor. They look kind of like a brontosaurus when you think about it. A little bit. With horns. Meanwhile, Quentin's training now involves holding a heavy weight while balancing in a small boat. Ramirez is encouraging him to focus while Clyde complains of hunger. I thought she was being too quiet. (laughs) The Dundees, meanwhile, spot a hint of the incoming ambush and brace for the attack. Ramirez has got a lot of fun snark to him in this series. Yeah. Elsewhere, at a camp, someone is complaining that he needs more Gorons to claim the whole valley. This is Mohar a bounty hunter with considerable ambition. Uh, and an 80s hairdo to, to boot. Yeah, he looks like a refugee from Blade Runner. 
Actually, I could see him as a yeah, or I could even see him as a like lesser known GI Joe figure, or the lost member of the of the Road Warriors. There you go, the tag team, of course. Now he's voiced by James Rankin, a journeyman performer who has worked as an actor, puppeteer, and yes, voice actor, and performed Cheatsy Koopa, aka Larry Koopa, in the games in Deke's Saturday Morning Mario cartoons. Wow, this is a case... Usually I'm the one who knows all the voice actor stuff, but this one you're blowing my mind with. I didn't know any of these. Well, this is why they pay me the non-existent big bucks. <laughs> the big Monopoly money bucks. Yeah. Mohar scouts return to report the whereabouts of the Dundee and their Gorons. And Mohar wants to attack, but his underlings protest that they're outnumbered. Yeah, Mohar is having none of that. Yeah, he's got something that will even the odds. Yeah, he believes they'll win, and it'll be a stepping stone to ruling Maganda. And his big gun is quite literally that. A big machine gun. Browning, to be precise. Yep. Kind of an interesting design for it, too. It's very stylized, but it, it you can see it and still know, yeah, that's a freaking machine gun. <laughs> Back with Quentin's training, he's still going at it and not happy about his struggles. Uh, he, he keeps complaining, and Ramirez gives him a combination of snark and also advice at the same time. Right. They're interrupted by the sound of machine gun fire, the surprise of which sends Quentin into the drink. Well, I don't know if it's that that sends Quentin to the drink as much as, like, Ramirez going, what the heck was that? And rowing, <laughs> instantly deciding to row and knocking him off, but yes. To which Quentin's like, I'm drowning! And it's like, you can't drown, you're an immortal, remember? Before that, we see Mohar going full auto on the Dundees who are scrambling to safety. Ramirez paddles to shore, stunned that a gun survived the cataclysm, while Quentin uh, semi-drowns, since... As Pemmy said, Quentin, as an immortal, cannot die by drowning. Fat lot of help that is when water's filling your lungs and you're panicking. I, I'm, I'm sure it still hurts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of hurt, the Dundee are getting hurt, with visible blood on one of them. Yeah, I was actually surprised by that. I He had a bullet hole in blood. I somehow missed that for the longest time until I rewatched it. I was just like... Holy heck, all right. That's a surprise. I guess that's the advantage of being on the USA Network. That's another thing we forgot to mention at the top. Oh, yeah. This show originally aired on the USA Network for season one and went to syndication for season two. So Mohar's Raider go in for the Gorans and the supplies, while Ramirez bolts right off to investigate, and Quentin just barely gets out of the lake and follows with Clyde in tow. I mean, can't hurt too much if he's on Ray to just get right back on there on that there and ride. Yeah. <laughs> Ramirez's haste gets him ambushed by the Dundees, who split off to reestablish a camp. Fortunately, they re they realize Ramirez and uh, apologize for knocking him off his uh, his his whatever. Yeah, his his mount. There we yeah. go. The reunion is pleasant, but the news of the weapon still has Ramirez's full attention. He takes Clyde to see to the wounded, while Quentin goes with a trio of unwounded Dundee to pursue their attackers. And the Dundee leader wants the weapon so they won't have to run from the hunters anymore. That sure gets Quentin's attention. I mean, valid. <laughs> 
They arrive at the wreckage of an old aircraft carrier, not that they recognize what it is, which Mohar is using as a base camp. Again, a kind of cool... It's a cool setup. Indeed. These are some of the best visuals I've seen in the cartoon, and there have been some good ones, at least as far as the backgrounds go. The Dundee leader instructs Quentin to crawl on the ground to be as stealthy as possible, and Quentin laughs that even Ramirez probably doesn't know this trick. I'm sure he does. (laughs) Yeah. But hey, let Quentin have his moment. (laughs) Inside, Mohar is informed by some cultist-type priest that the lieutenants are ready for the ceremony and Mohar insists his weapon, which he's named Brown, be praised. Nice way to reference what type of machine gun it is without actually, you know, having to pay a license for the uh, yeah. manufacturer. But even this reverence isn't enough to keep the priest from being wary of Cortan. Yeah, he's like, Cortan? Holy crap. That guy's bad news. <laughs> Quentin and the Dundees reach a ladder, which... Quentin reacts to somewhat dramatically, presumably hoping he doesn't get ambushed while vulnerable climbing. At least that's what I got out of it. It it is a weird kind of scene. It's like, I don't know if they just needed some extra time or... Or maybe there was a more elegant way to show that they were still trying to be sneaky and were worried about being caught. Yeah, or just trying to show just how big this thing is. It's also possible... Back at Dundee's camp, we get surgery. Yeah. The other Dundee mistaken for magic. Which, See, okay. And Clyde is, is made a little squeamish by the whole thing. That I relate to. Yeah. Again, surprising that they're having him perform surgery in the cartoon show. I mean, they don't show much of it, but it's highly suggested, and you do see a little. Um, yeah. But I mean, I guess if you've never seen surgery before, yeah, that's going to seem like magic. The telltale bullet confirms Ramirez's fears that Mohar indeed has a machine gun, a weapon from, as Ramirez quotes, a time when man's murderous folly knew no limits. Sadly, that line has aged all too well. (laughs) We get a flashback of a few soldiers being gunned down by a plane, as Ramirez explains how machine guns made men drunk with power and immune to reason, summing up Mohar pretty well, as it turns out. Also, I gotta give credit, I was... It's surprising they literally showed uh, soldiers getting gunned down in this. I also want to point out that Ramirez said scissors and instead got pliers, but, you know. Ramirez is determined to find the gun, and Clyde, of course, wants to go along, but is told to stay put. We'll see how long that lasts. Not long at all, obviously. No. At this point, the Dundee infiltrators are within the carrier, overhearing some of Mohar's men remark about always getting lost while trying to find the ceremony. It's a big boat. Quentin eventually spots said ceremony, complete with incense and worship of the Browning gun. Not cult-like at all. (laughs) Cargo cult. (laughs) A futuristic cargo cult, which is even more weird. I mean, the priest literally had a hood, so, you know, you can't get more cult than that. They're spotted by a late guard, though, who is dispatched right as Ramirez and Clyde find the aircraft carrier. Yep, Clyde staying put didn't last long, because of course it wouldn't. Nah, she's a stubborn girl. 
Mohar finds the downed guard and pursues the Dundee as Quentin stays out of his sight up on the ceiling. Once the other goons follow Mohar, Quentin goes after the gun, which has been locked down by the hooded priest. And Quentin gets his key via his uh, boomerang. I told you you'd give me the key. <laughs> Locking up the priest, Quentin asks how the weapon works, giving the crafty priest the opportunity to give Quentin just enough instruction to shoot himself. But the kid gets wise and aims the gun the correct way. That is a good scene, though, because they literally make it look like Quentin's going to shoot himself only for him at the last minute to switch around and say, well, why didn't you say so? Show them to be a smarter kid than you think for a second there. Mm -hmm. Ramirez seems to get Clyde to stay put this time as he climbs up the ladder from earlier, while Quentin has the gun figured out and leaves the priest chained up. The Dundies get their Gorns back. The Dundee leader wants to find Quentin, but Ramirez informs him, Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of that. And as for Quentin, now he's gone completely trigger-happy, shooting at nothing in particular to, to the sound of goofy xylophone music. I mean, just listen to this! Hey, he blew up a few uh, planes. I think those yeah. are planes. <laughs> Honestly, the show is kind of playing loose with the gun's actual attributes, since the bullets aren't ricocheting off the walls or doing much of anything in that hallway but making noise. But they sure have the power to explode that old plane. <laughs> well, you, you show it where you need it, I guess. <laughs> Once Quentin spots the Dundee successfully having got out, he goes to take care of Cortan with Brown. But Mohar has to come first. And Quentin instantly learns stealth. <laughs> yeah. Mohar and his men go after Quentin with clubs. This won't end well for anyone, will it? You know, you, you use what you have. Though rather than just go and shoot them, Quentin is instead doing some like pretty snazzy uh, Metal Gear Solid level of stealth. Ramirez arrives and asks what Quentin intends to do, giving away the kid's position to the raiders. However, Quentin still manages, despite this, to still keep hiding, and which causes the raiders to even wonder if he's a freaking ghost. Ramirez, for his part, is trying to get Quentin to realize what a mistake he's making via a series of if-that-then-what questions, asking him about the next steps with that weapon. But Quentin just believes that with the weapon... He doesn't need Ramirez, and that bothers the old swordsman. Which it doesn't. And then, what do we have? Another tyrant. Mm -hmm. Quentin does find Mohar and company, and makes him jump off the carrier via some gunfire. You know what? That's a high carrier, so uh, they ain't living through that. Probably not. And Ramirez sarcastically applauds. What is a worse death, being shot or jumping off a cliff? The jump, it, it elongates the suspense. Yet, oddly, that's more censor-appropriate. Go figure. <laughs> Quentin is blinded by his power trip and yells at his mentor right as Clyde arrives. You see, Quentin believes now that he has no need of Ramirez with Brown, so the Jedditor gives up his sword and wants Quentin to have his first victory against, against Ramirez. 
against, then you'll have your first victory against me. After Ramirez gives Quentin the sword, Ramirez literally pulls a freaking pipe off the freaking like metal fence, like one of the bars off the metal fence, like practically nothing. <laughs> kind of impressive. Clyde begs Quentin to stop, and Ramirez demands he fight like a Highlander. So Quentin tosses away the gun, which goes off and shoots Clyde in the arm. Yipes. I've seen worse misfires of weapons in shows. I remember that episode of Gargoyles. <laughs> now that snaps Quentin out of it, thankfully. Asking Ramirez to see to Clyde, Quentin somberly goes to pitch the gun into a lake. Pretty distant, distant amount into the lake, I might add, so it's not like someone's going to easily find it anytime soon. Right. He tries to make an excuse to Ramirez, but the 3,000-year-old swordsman will have none of it. And I don't blame him. Yep. But, so Quentin instead says, All right, but one day, I'll be the one making the jokes. Ramirez can't wait for that day, since it means his apprenticeship will be over. And he'll be done with you. This leads to an everyone laughs ending. Because Clyde says, You say that, but I know you really like Quentin. Oh, do you think so, do you? And then, awkward laugh. Yeah. So you probably picked up on this, but there's a pretty heavy-handed anti-gun message in this episode. Yeah, but I still do like the, I do think the idea of, you know, a post-apocalyptic world finding a gun and how it could affect someone is still an interesting idea on a concept level. Be like something they could have done in Thundar the Barbarian. That I True. Think about it. Yeah. So speaking for myself, this is far from the worst thing I've ever seen. It doesn't come close to the levels of boring that Lassie's Rescue Rangers hits, nor is it so bad it's fascinating like Darkstalkers was. But at the same time, I personally didn't find much remarkable about it either. The acting is decent. The stories are serviceable, but I didn't find them to be too gr ground-shattering. And the same with the animation. You know, there's good world-building, the backgrounds are well done, and... There's good concepts here. I'll give them all that. But I just couldn't find myself getting into these characters. That's fair. I like this show, but I also have a weakness for post-apocalyptic stuff. So that helps. I, I would never call this show like one of the best shows, but I still think it's a fun show. So it's good. It's serviceable. It's decent. I will say it's underrated, though. <laughs> fair. I think it's aged better than, say, the original Thundercats. It's aged better than some shows, but yeah, I won't. I, I won't defend the the character designs aren't the greatest, and the animation is kind of clumsy. the The character designs look like they learned the wrong lessons from Batman the animated series, kind of. Mm. It's like, oh, we can make things simple. That'll work. Yeah, but you have to animate with that in mind. <laughs> so Highlander didn't just get a second season. But that season was more than double the length of the first to prepare the show for syndication, bringing the total number of episodes up to 40. Which is weird, because I thought syndication usually required 60-something, but... Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's cases where they just kind of hand-wave it. It's like, eh, close enough. Apparently, Guamont Multimedia thought they had a franchise home run on their hands. It's Highlander action figures and a video game on the Atari Jaguar... <laughs> Sorry. Oops. 
<laughs> of all systems you chose. Those all followed in the show's wake as well. But with Batman reboot and the X-Men ruling the action-adventure cartoon roost of the era, Highlander was at best and also ran. A throwback to how these cartoons were done in the 80s, trying to swim upstream against the current trends. Yeah, I didn't actually know that there was action figures made of this. I'm like curious to look that up on eBay now. I guess my final verdict is if it was on, I'd probably sit down and watch it again, but without something like the hammy filmation villains of He-Man and She-Ra or Thundar's more boisterous action and personality, I'm not necessarily going to be seeking it out either. This was one of those shows I watched like in high school whenever I got home. I don't remember what year of high school, but there was a year of high school that I'd watch it every time I got home because the syndicated channel or the channel, the local channel in Ardmore, Oklahoma that played like syndicated television had like this weird block that would air whenever I got home from school. It would show the new adventures of Heckle and Jekyll, Sport Billy, Highlander, the animated series and Mighty Max. Wow. What a weird combo. So what of the franchise itself? Due to how utterly disconnected to just about everything else that was Highlander at the time, the animated series was left behind by it, just like the second and third movies. Maybe the real Genitors were all the ab- abandoned points of direction of the series. All, all things considered, I think this is an interesting way to take the series. Did it work? Eh, arguably, you can argue, but I, I think it was at least an interesting concept. But I can also understand why a lot of people who did like the movies and the TV, the live-action TV series wouldn't like it, because it is a massive jump. When Highlander did return to theaters in 2000 with Highlander Endgame, it followed in the footsteps of the live-action television series, which had a rock-solid six-season run ending in 1998. And indeed, a 2007 made-for-TV movie on the Sci-Fi Channel, Highlander the Source, takes place several years after the events of the show, but subsequently was also not well-received, leading to it being similarly discarded in subsequent audio productions from Big Finish Media, the same company who does the myriad Doctor Who audio dramas. And there's a Highlander anime, supposedly, too. Yep, Highlander, The Search for Vengeance, put out the same year as The Source, and those would be the last major pieces of media in the now-dormant franchise. Which seemingly under had another McCloud by the name of Colin McCloud in it. Do you oh. suppose that uh, Search for Vengeance is going to end up on the list? Eh, maybe. <laughs> I've never seen it, but it might be an interesting comparison to go on. Maybe when we crack that film code. Yeah, one of these days. I did just look up the figures randomly on eBay because I was curious. It seems like mostly just Quentin and Ramirez and one of the guards. Oh, wait, there's a Cortan, too. Or or at least now, give credit. They do a good job of representing their uh, cartoon models in toy form. Nice. So, prices are all over the place, but it doesn't look like anybody's buying them. It looks more like they're asking for large amounts and not getting bought. <laughs> I did see one for $10, which, you know what? 
Or no, I see one. Oh, jeez. Oh, it's because it's from the United Kingdom. No wonder. It looks like a lot of these may have only been released in Europe, which could explain a lot of these prices. That, that would explain it, yeah. Yeah, because I found one of Quentin here, because a lot of them are also in box, so that's also why they're charging a lot. But I found one of Quentin that was actually looks in good condition out of box for six bucks, but also the shipping is estimated to be like $25. So it's like... <laughs> I want it, but I don't want to pay $25 for shipping. <laughs> so that pretty much puts an end to Summer Blockbuster Month. But if you want more uh, movie-to-cartoon adaptations, if you haven't already, go back and check out our episode on the real Ghostbusters. Way back at our first episode. Which, uh, in my opinion, is the best movie-to-cartoon conversion I've ever seen. So, personal opinion. At least for the first few seasons. <laughs> and for properties that went the other direction, of course, there's our Transformers episode you can go look at. And for another property that went in another direction, well, tune in in two weeks. <laughs> and to prepare for that, I'm going to go stock up some Cocoa Pebbles. See ya! The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.